Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Gianna Melillo, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. It's well known the state of maternal morbidity and mortality in the United States is subpar. From stark racial disparities in maternal deaths to a severe shortage of midwives and doulas, birthing people in the United States face unique challenges not seen in other high-income countries. Plus, the recent increase in legislation aimed at curbing abortion access throughout the nation may serve to exacerbate these problems as more women are forced to carry unwanted pregnancies to term. To better understand how we got here and examine some potential solutions to these problems, the American Journal of Managed Care sat down with Brianna Lipscomb, the Senior Medical Advisor of Maternal Health and Rights at the Center for Reproductive Rights. This week also marks Black Maternal Health Week, and on this episode of Managed Carecast, Lipscomb outlines steps needed to improve care for Black mothers in the U.S., a demographic that is more than three times more likely to have a maternal death compared with their white counterparts. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Brianna. To begin, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work you do? Sure. So Brianna Lipscomb, I'm the Senior Advisor of Maternal Health and Rights for the Center for Reproductive Rights, and I lead our maternal health strategy, um, working both at the state and federal levels to uh, advance proactive maternal health policy that will help us um, ensure access to safe and respectful maternal health care for birthing people across the U.S. We specifically use a human rights framework to address the issue, which means that we're centering the populations um, that are are most uh, impacted by the issues of maternal mortality and morbidity. um, And because we believe that access to um, reproductive health care, including maternal health, uh, is a human right. Numerous studies have detailed the United States' poor performance when it comes to maternal morbidity and mortality compared with other high-income nations. So can you elaborate on how we fell so far behind and how we got to the point where we are today? Yeah, that's a great question. And and frankly, I think it's a little baffling. Um, I think we're constantly trying to figure out why the U.S. is tracking behind so many other um, countries that have similar economies to ours. And this is particularly perplexing because the U.S. spends so much on healthcare. I think the last number I saw is that we're spending like $111 billion annually on healthcare. Um, And yet we still have some of the worst health outcomes um, across the spectrum, um, and obviously including maternal health. I think that there are a couple of different um, theories on why this is, anything from the you know, medicalization of childbirth. So um, in many other countries, midwifery care is like the first line of defense or the first, you know, kind of wave of, of maternal maternity care. But in the U.S., we send folks straight to a hospital with a with an obstetrician. Um, and so perhaps there are some opportunities there and we're exploring those. Um, I think in general across the U.S., we know that um, chronic disease is, is on the rise. Um, but I think it's also 
more than that, right? I mean, particularly when we look at the rates in the US, many of those high numbers are driven by the racial disparities um, that, that exist and persist here. Um, and so I think that there's also questions, not just about the fact that we spend so much on healthcare, but what is the quality of care that's being delivered to people once they do enter the healthcare system? And going off of that, can you explain some of the unique challenges that pregnant people might face in both urban and rural settings throughout the country? I know you're currently based in Georgia. For sure. So Georgia is actually a really interesting place to to share because I think it kind of models what we see across the U.S. where, you know, we have Atlanta, which is, you know, the capital city urban area, um, and folks still have problems accessing respectful and safe care. Um, And then you also in Georgia have very rural areas. You know, half the counties uh, in Georgia don't have uh, a maternity care provider, and that actually mirrors the um, maternity care deserts across the U.S. So roughly half of the counties in the entire United States do not have an obstetric provider. So what does that mean for issues as it relates to um, accessing care, accessing emergency um, obstetric care? Uh, One thing that um, we know is that the, the longer the, the, the longer that a person has to travel to access um, like labor and delivery services or their, their maternity care provider, their risk for maternal health implica- uh, complications as well as their risk of preterm delivery exponentially increases. Um, And so we really have to address the issue that folks in rural settings are um, facing when they can't get to a provider. And then in urban settings where providers are seemingly plentiful, why are we still having those poor outcomes? You know, there's some recent um, research that has shown that hospitals that serve, you know, higher proportions or higher populations of Black patients tend to deliver lower quality care. Um, And I think that some people might blame that on, you know, chronic conditions or other risk factors that the people going to those hospitals have. But when you control for those factors, there's still a disparity in the quality of care that is delivered. And so I think we're dealing with a situation where in rural settings, folks can't get to care. And then in urban settings, the care they receive just is subpar. And you kind of answered my next question there, but is there anything you wanted to add as to what accounts for such sharp racial disparities when it comes to death from childbirth complications in the US? little bit about just the quality of care, um, particularly in, in urban settings, but I think this can be in any setting. Um, what we know is that if you have a Black woman that has the exact same risk factors, and I'm talking chronic conditions, it could be obesity, it could be um, chronic hypertension, uh, it could be um, diabetes developed during pregnancy, whatever the risk factor is, right, that one would think might lead to um, pregnancy complications. If a Black woman has the same complications and risk factors as a white woman, she is still more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes. Why is that? Right. And so what we're trying to figure out is, you know, what are the influences of um, of racism, discrimination and implicit bias 
on those very things. So I, I work for the Center for Reproductive Rights and we intentionally use a human rights approach to the work that we do. A few years ago, we um, partnered with some organizations like Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, and did a, what we call a fact-finding report where we were able to talk to women that um, you know, were trying to access maternity care services. And um, we spoke to people in Georgia, we talked to people in Mississippi, um, and we've heard many of these same stories in other states across the country, even New York. Um, and so when we talked to them, what we discovered is that there were these consistent themes of disrespect, mistreatment, abuse, um, you know, ignoring any complications or concerns that they might have about their own health during pregnancy or complications that may have um, come up during their delivery. Um, and so what we believe is that those instances of what we're calling obstetric violence or mistreatment and abuse in facility settings is that that is leading to many of these negative outcomes. Um, we know that even with the height of the um, COVID-19 pandemic early on when they were limiting who could go and be a support person for birthing people in hospitals because they were trying to, um, you know, the, they were at capacity in many of the hospitals. But then we also saw people, birthing people going into hospitals, having to deliver alone. And some of those people did not make it out. And we don't know why. But what we know is that they had to deliver unassisted with no doula, no other support person to help advocate on their behalf. And so those are the types of questions that we're trying to grapple with. Those are the types of issues that we're trying to address. Um, and I think the first line of defense is to make sure that we're integrating anti-racism and implicit bias training um, into the education curriculums um, for medical schools or for nursing schools, midwifery schools, anyone that has a hand in the care of pregnant people, they need to be aware of how discrimination and bias is literally killing Black women in our country. That's particularly distressing because you said those data are from recent years, right? Correct, yes. So moving on to some potential solutions. In Georgia, they recently extended the postpartum Medicaid extension program from six to 12 months. What impact do you think that this will have? And can you elaborate on why postpartum care is so integral as opposed to just delivery care? excited about the progress that we've seen in Georgia, you know, kind of going back just a little bit, you know, we've been working on extending coverage in Georgia to one year since 2019. So we've been working on this for several years. Uh, if you go back to 2019 and early 2020, no state was covering, um, you know, the postpartum period beyond the federally mandated 60 days. And so Georgia was one of the first when we extended from 60 days to six months. And then there was a wave of interest from many other states that went ahead and did the full one year. And then as you alluded, Georgia just recently finally went the full distance and got us to a year. And so in Georgia, that is 
over 65,000 women that will benefit from that extended coverage. So any complications that arise up to one year postpartum, they will have access to care. Any lactation consulting um, or lactation support needs they have, they will have access to that. Um, and similarly, as we're watching many other states continue to take up this option to extend coverage to one year, um, you know, it's exciting because I think nationally Medicaid covers about 40 percent of um, of births in the nation. In states like Georgia and many other southeastern states, Medicaid covers more than half of the um, of the births in the state. So particularly in states like Georgia, others that did not expand Medicaid more broadly as part of the Affordable Care Act. This extension to one year postpartum is particularly critical because many of these people would otherwise fall in that healthcare coverage gap. Um, I think it's important, though, that we look at this, particularly in the postpartum period, because, as I said, you know, there are many issues that arise beyond that 60 days. So a person goes in for their six week checkup, but then after that, if they had any other chronic conditions, suddenly they would no longer have care or coverage for any medications um, or, or doctor's visits. Um, and so we also know that in that later post postpartum period, is when um, more women might experience uh, perinatal mood disorders. So maternal mental health during that period is also of great concern. So we're really excited that this coverage has been extended, but also recognize that just making the provision of care is only one piece of it. We also need to think about what all is covered during that time and what types of providers. As we kind of alluded to, a lot of the focus is placed on the physical complications of pregnancy and the postpartum period, but did you want to discuss further any of the mental health care coverage gaps seen in this population? Sure. So, I, you know, mental health and particularly maternal mental health is critically important. Um, not only is mental health important just for the sake of, um, you know, creating and sustaining strong families and strong individuals and a sense of self, but we know that mental health conditions are, are one of the leading causes of maternal mortality. Uh, perinatal mood disorders are the number one complication of pregnancy and childbirth, and it affects roughly um, one in seven postpartum women in the U.S., and you know, earlier we were talking about disparities, and I think it's always important to highlight that particularly for Black women experiencing um, and developing perinatal mood disorders, um, they're more likely to develop perinatal mood disorders, but they're less likely to receive treatment. And that's due to a variety of factors from um, stigma in the Black community of accessing mental health services, um, but also considering that Black women and other women of color and women living in poverty settings um, tend to face, you know, criminalization and penalties um, as it relates to pregnancy and motherhood more frequently, um, there's always the fear of involvement of child welfare services when it comes to seeking treatment for um, perinatal mood disorders or, or mental health services. Uh, and then of course, 
mental health treatment is not cheap. <laughs> so there are financial barriers associated. And so that's why when we think about extending Medicaid in the postpartum period to one year, and then thinking about how that is going to improve access or expand access to mental health services for pregnant people in the US, it's just, it's, it's really overwhelming to think about the possibilities um, that exist with this newly extended coverage. These topics seem to have been gaining more and more traction at the federal level in recent years. And just yesterday, CMS released a statement on its birthing-friendly hospital designation plan, um, and they're going to be releasing more requirements for hospitals in the coming days. Do you think that this initiative will be effective? So I I am familiar with the birthing-friendly hospital designation, um, and I am hopeful, right? So I don't know if it will be effective, but I am hopeful that it will be effective. Um, So I, along with some other advocates, have been in conversations with CMS uh, about this particular um, initiative because I think it's something that's needed. Um, We need to make sure that hospitals are birthing friendly, right? Um, But I think we also have to be really careful about how we make these designations. Um, And so I think when the report that I read, kind of this first wave is really going to be squarely focused, um, or the criteria is going to be squarely focused on um, hospitals that participated in some sort of uh, maternity care quality improvement collaborative. Um, And I think that that's great. I think that that's a first step. But I think also what we have to realize is that um, quality improvement initiatives alone are not going to get us where we need to be as far as making sure that folks are having um, safe and respectful birth care experiences. Uh, And I think particularly for Black women that um, face this type of mistreatment and disrespect in hospital settings, um, I think that other criteria related to patient satisfaction metrics, um, you know, other metrics related to to C-section outcomes and, um, you know, how inviting are hospitals to um, diverse birth care teams. So uh, is there a problem when someone brings a doula in or does that hospital have, um, you know, agreement, transfer agreements with, um, with community midwives, things like that, that I think we're going to have to look at really comprehensively before we're able to designate someone as birthing friendly. Because I think the big question is birthing friendly to who or to whom. Um, and so I, that is, that's my hope. So to your question, I I am hopeful that this is a successful and an effective initiative, because frankly, at this point, we have no choice but to make sure that our hospitals across the nation are birthing friendly. Lives are depending on it. Apart from political intervention, what do you and the Center for Reproductive Rights in general hope to see will be done in the near future to improve these maternal care and mortality Uh, disparities seen in the United States? Like what's next for your agenda? Aside from our involvement with Congress and state legislatures, um, I think you raised a really good question previously. So we're looking at how we can engage with um, administrations, both 
at the federal level, but also at the state level. So um, continuing to, to speak with the Centers for um, Medicare and Medicaid Services about efforts like their birthing friendly hospital designation or about how we can get um, permanent mandatory extension of Medicaid to one year postpartum in every state that it shouldn't just be voluntary for all states to decide if they want to extend coverage. There should be consistent coverage across the US, regardless of where you live. Um, aside from access to care in, in that regard, we're also looking at how we can improve data quality. So we've been working with CDC as well as other state um, departments of health and how they collect their maternal mortality and morbidity data. So what we know is that you know, the programs and policy solutions that we create are only as good as um, what our data can drive us to, right? But in order to have the best quality data, we need to be doing comprehensive reviews, which means that we need to have diverse teams of um, people, not just racially diverse, but diverse by discipline, weighing in on um, what are the contributing factors of maternal deaths in our states. So we're looking at data quality issues. We're looking at expanding access to um, Medicaid, but we're also looking at how we can um, expand access to community-based birth workers. So this includes doulas that are, are really critical in providing strong support systems um, for pregnant people. And then also looking how we can expand access to midwifery care. Um, what we know is that in across the US, um, I think I said it previously, that we have these really vast uh, maternity care deserts. Um, and I think that midwifery care is, is a great solution to that. And so we are working to identify why some states like Georgia and many other Southern states have some of the most restrictive midwifery access um, regulations, um, but also some of the worst uh, maternal mortality um, rates and maternal health outcomes. And so we need to think about, you know, what are the connections and correlations between these really restrictive policies um, and these negative uh, maternal health outcomes. So we're trying to tackle it from, from every point possible. You know, this is a really complex issue and we're hopeful that, um, that we'll be able to make a change. The U.S. Health system is notoriously disjointed and oftentimes, as I'm sure you know, change can take years that people can see in their own personal health and lives. And in the meantime, more and more states seem to be introducing bills that restrict abortion access, which might potentially exacerbate the problem as more women are forced to carry unwanted pregnancies. And I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on these sort of short-term term recent legislative actions while you're working long-term to improve maternal care? Well, that's a great question. And I have lots of thoughts about the recent wave of um, abortion restrictions. And I don't even know if I can call it a recent wave. It's, it's almost like um, abortion access is constantly under attack in this country. Um, I think it's disingenuous. I think that state legislatures that spend their time and resources um, you know, enacting these abortion restrictions is um, hypocritical. I think that when, when we hear many of these legislators that are um, 
against abortion access, against reproductive health access. These are the same people that talk about wanting to protect pregnancy and wanting to support families. And yet they are very quick to pass abortion restrictions but when advocates like myself and many of the partners that I'm working with, when we're asking for paid leave or um, livable wages for people, when we're asking for uh, access to doula care and having Medicaid cover those types of services or making sure that Medicaid is covering community-based midwifery care, it's radio silence. We, we, we aren't able to make progress on those very issues that would be supportive of families. When we're asking for affordable childcare, when we're asking for affordable housing, right? These are the policies that are pro-families. Um, and instead their efforts are misguided. They're focused on restricting access to a piece, a critical piece, of the reproductive health system. And so I think that it's important as we're talking about these issues related to maternal health, that we're thinking about how maternal health is one piece of a broader continuum of reproductive health, um, reproductive health, reproductive health care, um, but also reproductive justice. And so I think that until we're in a place where people really are able to make decisions for themselves fully at any time in their lives, um, I think that we will always have work to do and we'll have to continue to unveil the hypocrisy um, that exists, particularly in states um, like the Southeast, like the Midwest, where they tend to have the highest number of abortions, the fewest number of supportive uh, maternal health policies, and the worst maternal health outcomes. Well, those are all the questions I prepared, but is there anything we didn't touch on you'd like to include, or do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share? Just to share that if people are interested in um, getting involved, getting engaged, um, helping with advocacy in any way, or just to learn more about the, our maternal health and rights initiative and the work that we're doing to assure access to safe and respectful maternal health care as a human right, they can visit our website at reproductiverights.org um, and you can learn more about the work that we do. Thank you so much. Thank you, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Same to you. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.